Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, guys, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So, I've scoured the internet for the headlines so you don't have to. Happy commuting, and here we go. So our first one comes from CBS News 48 Hours. Title reads, Teen Stabbing Suspect Claims Magic Mushrooms Made Him Do It. When Donna Ongsiako, probably butchered that, opened her front door just after midnight to let in her cat, the last thing she expected to see was a stranger with a knife. It was July 7th. 2013 and up to that point, she says it had been a routine weekend. Now she was face to face with a young man on her porch cutting into the screen of her porch window. Quote, I tried to slam and shut the door. He stuck the knife through the opening and I cut my finger so that I immediately let go of the door. And then he pushed his way in. End quote. Without a word, the stranger repeatedly stabbed her. After she collapsed to the floor, she says the intruder finally spoke to her. Quote, he decided then to ask me for my car keys and if I had a lighter. End quote. She told him both were on the kitchen table and he took them, along with her purse. But she says he wasn't finished with her. He came over to where she lay bleeding. He said, quote, you dead bitch, and plunged the knife into my chest, end quote. Then she says her attacker walked out. Now, her house was located on a flower farm in Colts Neck, New Jersey. Her adult daughter, Kirsten, lived there but was out at a party, home alone, bleeding profusely. With no neighbors in earshot, Donna's only chance at survival depended on reaching her cell phone, which was upstairs charging. Thinking about Kirsten possibly finding her dead motivated her to climb those stairs. To this day, she doesn't know how she did it. She managed to call 911 and, before briefly losing consciousness, described her assailant. He had long, blonde, curly hair and a backpack. She thought he looked about 17 years old. Police and first responders arrived within minutes, but the young man had fled. She was rushed to the hospital and was in surgery for more than seven hours. It saved her life. She is now speaking publicly about her attack, the hunt for her assailant, and overcoming trauma. 48 Hours contributor Jim Axelrod reports on the case in, quote, A Stabbing in Colt's Neck, airing Saturday, May 20th at 10, 9 central on CBS. So uh, that's already aired. Possibly you could find it on YouTube or on the CBS website. It is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. So almost immediately after the assault, a manhunt began for her attacker, Monmouth County Detective Andrea Tazi says shortly before her 911 call, a driver had called police to report a young man with a backpack hitchhiking along the road near her home. Police responded, but the young man was gone. Tazi felt it was a strong lead. Quote, 
It was too coincidental for somebody to be walking and then 15 minutes later, you know, Donna is calling to say she was stabbed, end quote. Tazi says police got another call shortly after her attack. Taco Bell employees in a strip mall five miles from her home reported a young man with a similar appearance walking through their drive-thru with a knife. Police didn't find him, but while searching the area, they found her stolen car abandoned behind a movie theater. Then a Taco Bell customer who had seen the suspect helped police create a sketch. Investigators showed it to the victim, who tweaked it, saying, that looks like the person who stabbed me. A tip led investigators to 16-year-old Brennan Doyle, who lived near her home. Doyle fit the description of the suspect sketch around town. The tipster said, and what's more, he had recently cut his skater-style short hair. Tazi had never heard Doyle's name before. Looking into his background, she found no juvenile record. Quote, he had never been arrested, she said. At the end of July, when the Doyle family was back in town from a trip, the detective went to their house. Quote, I wanted to see if Brennan cut his hair. Tazi says Brennan seemed nervous when she showed him the suspect sketch. Quote, he was wearing a baseball hat, but you could tell his hair was cut short. End quote. She continued monitoring Doyle while also investigating other leads. In the fall of 2013, employees of a bowling alley in a strip mall where her car had been abandoned alerted police that they found a knife on their roof. Investigators got a warrant to search Doyle's home where they retrieved a similar knife. They had already obtained a warrant for Brennan's DNA, which ultimately matched DNA found in the victim's stolen car. In late October, Doyle was arrested and charged with six counts, including attempted murder and carjacking. He pleaded not guilty. Former Monmouth County Assistant Prosecutor Lori Gerhardt explains she wanted Doyle charged as an adult because of the seriousness of the crime. Quote, in juvenile court, Brennan is looking at four years maximum. In adult court, I know he's looking at up to 30 years, she said. A judge ruled Doyle would be tried as an adult and Doyle posted bail. The victim felt, quote, anger that he was even allowed to be bailed out. Her daughter Kirsten says she was terrified of Doyle. As prosecutors prepared for trial, the details of what happened the night of her attack emerged. According to investigative reports, Doyle claimed that prior to the stabbing, he used hallucinogenic or magic mushrooms. He stated that he became paranoid and felt like he was losing touch with reality. He said he had a knife in his hand, so his father locked him out of their home. Investigators believe Doyle approached the victim's nearby house that night wanting to steal her car, but Gerhardt does not believe Doyle acted like someone incapacitated. Quote, this kid allegedly on all these mushrooms whacked out of his mind manages to ditch a knife. He abandons the car. That's not a kid who's so high on mushroom he doesn't know what he's doing. End quote. And I agree. In August 2015, Doyle pleaded guilty to carjacking and attempted murder. The prosecution dropped the remaining charges. 
So Ong Siako attended his sentencing, quote, I wanted him to see me as strong and as a survivor, she said. Doyle had his turn to address the court. Quote, the drugs turned me into a monster that night. I am truly sorry, end quote. Doyle was sentenced to 15 years in state prison. So thankful she survived that. Our next article comes out of NBC San Diego. It is, and the title reads, Body of Arby's employee found inside restaurant's freezer in what appears to be a tragic accident. Police say the death at the Louisiana restaurant appears to have been accidental. So the article says a body was discovered inside a walk-in freezer at an Arby's restaurant in Louisiana on Thursday. New Iberia Police Captain Leland Lasseter said the woman is an employee of the fast food restaurant and that preliminary hearings suggest her death appears to have been an accident. Quote, a situation like this is unusual, so we're taking extra precautions during the investigation. We pretty much have completed our process at the crime scene. After completely processing the crime scene, this does not seem like a homicide. It seems like an accident, end quote. An employee found the body during regular business hours on Thursday evening at the restaurant, which is located in a village shopping center. Multiple employees have been interviewed as part of the investigation. An autopsy will be conducted to confirm the victim's identity and determine the cause of death. I don't know. Maybe she was older. Did she have a heart attack? Natural causes? I don't know. Hopefully we hear more about that. So our next one comes from ABC News, and the title reads, Convicted Serial Killer Scott Kimball's Sons Break Silence 20 Years After Father's Killing Spree. So the article says, Nearly two decades after authorities began connecting the dots to uncover the grisly truth behind four missing people linked to Scott Kimball, a Colorado FBI informant and serial killer, his sons are breaking their silence. Kimball's sons, Justin and Cody, who were just children at the time of the killing spree, are discussing for the first time details around what they claim is their father's attempt to kill Justin when he was just 10 years old. Quote, I just remember thinking this guy is going to kill me and he's obviously making it look like an accident. No one's going to know because I'm going to be dead. End quote. Justin, now age 29, said in an exclusive interview with 2020. So one evening in July 2004, Scott Kimball and his two boys were out in the backyard digging holes and chasing mice. Justin said that when Cody went inside the house, his father told Justin to dig a hole in a specific spot while keeping his eyes on the horizon. Quote, it felt like I saw a bunch of stars, flashes in front of my face, and then came the big wham. I heard it hitting me, end quote. A large metal cattle grate had fallen onto his head. While en route to the hospital, Justin claims his father tried to kill him again by pushing him out of a moving car. Quote, what I do remember him pushing me out was by my face because I remember how big his hand was and how warm it felt on my cold face. 
According to a police report, Scott Kimball told officers he was inside when Justin was playing near the grate, looked out and saw it fall on top of his son. Kimball also told police that he was trying to pull Justin back into the car, not push him out on the way to the hospital. Quote, at this time, we have no reason to believe there was any criminal activity involved, end quote, the police report stated. The boys' mom, Larissa, then divorced from Scott, rushed to the hospital when she got the news about her son. Quote, the surgeon came in and he said, I just want to tell you right now, it doesn't look good. End quote. Larissa, who is using only her first name for privacy reasons, told 2020. Justin suffered critical brain damage and was put into a medically induced coma, but miraculously survived. And his first words upon regaining consciousness would shock the family members gathered around his bed. Quote, I remember saying, my dad did it, because I remember thinking that my last thought before I lost consciousness was, no one's ever going to know that he tried to do this to me, end quote, Justin said. According to authorities, there was a life insurance policy on Justin worth $50,000. Just days before the incident, Scott had made himself the sole beneficiary. And you know, guys, isn't that always how it is? Always look at the life insurance policy action. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. So when asked about how she felt when she learned about Scott's change to the policy, Larissa said, quote, To be honest, I think I threw up because then it all started making sense. This was no accident, end quote. At the time, the neurosurgeon treating Justin said the injuries likely affected his memory of the accident. Scott Kimball was never charged with any crime surrounding the incident with Justin, and he denies causing his son any harm. Two years later, in 2006, local detectives in Lafayette, Colorado, began investigating Scott Kimball for check fraud. He was apprehended after a dramatic police chase in California and charged as a habitual offender with previous nonviolent crimes, including forgery, theft, and fraud. However, the detectives suspected Scott Kimball was involved in much more than financial crimes after it came to light that he was the last person to be seen with two missing women, Casey McLeod and Jennifer Markham, who both disappeared in 2003. So in 2003, Kimball convinced the FBI to use him as a paid informant to stop a murder again. The FBI had used Kimball in the past as an informant in Alaska and Seattle. And side note, Alaska and the Pacific Northwest, need I say more? Anyway, where they believed he was instrumental in helping to stop the murder of a federal judge and a prosecutor. But in 2003, he not only falsely led the FBI to believe he could help them prevent murder as an informant in Colorado, he killed several people during this time period, including Jennifer Markham. The FBI investigated her disappearance, but her body was never found and the case went cold. The FBI would later admit to being duped by Kimball. Not only did Kimball deceive the FBI, but he also deceived Lori McLeod, the mother of one of the missing girls, Casey McLeod. Kimball explained that he worked for the FBI and was using his contacts to look for Casey. 
Yikes. Kimball's web of lies and manipulation finally unraveled in 2006 when the two fathers of those missing women went to the FBI. Rob McLeod had reached out to Bob Markham after seeing a news article about Jennifer Markham's disappearance that mentioned Scott Kimball as being the last person to see her alive. Quote, Rob McLeod and Bob Markham come into the FBI office in November 2006. Both Rob and Bob tell my boss that Scott Kimball took their daughters. End quote. Scott was also connected to two more missing people, his own uncle, Terry, and Leanne Emery, the ex-girlfriend of another one of Kimball's former cellmates. Quote, nobody saw a big picture of who Scott Kimball was. It wasn't until we started looking at his criminal history and piecing things together that we could see that each individual agency had no idea what they were really dealing with, said Gary Thatcher, chief investigator with the Boulder County District Attorney's Office, who was investigating Kimball for check fraud. Investigators got a break in the case while questioning Kimball about the disappearances, and he mentioned the possibility that one of the missing women might be found on National Park Service land. Quote, Scott was trying to get time in federal prison because it's easier life for him than in state prison. Investigators already knew that Scott said he had been hunting on the days Casey McLeod disappeared. While executing a search warrant of Kimball's belongings, Gruzing had found a receipt for a grocery store in Walden, Colorado, which is surrounded by national forest land. Gruzing called the Forest Service and learned that a hunter had recently found a skull on the ground in that area. Quote, based upon what Scott had said, based upon the receipt, Based upon the godforsaken place this hiker was recovered, I had a really good notion it was Casey, end quote, Grusing said. And he was right, and the confirmation was a turning point in the investigation. Now that investigators had recovered Casey McLeod's remains, they negotiated a deal with Scott Kimball. He agreed to lead them to Jennifer Markham, Terry Kimball and Leanne Emery in exchange for reduced charges. Kimball's information led investigators to the bodies of Leanne Emery in Utah's Book Cliffs and Uncle Terry near Vail, Colorado. However, Jennifer Markham was never found. As a result, his plea deal was renegotiated. In October 2009, Scott Kimball was sentenced to 70 years in prison after pleading guilty to the murders of Casey, Jennifer, Leanne, and Terry. At the sentencing, the courtroom was filled with victims' relatives. Quote, My daughter was a young woman with feelings and dreams, and to treat her like trash is despicable, said Leanne Emery's father. Justin Kimball is affected by the grave injuries he says were inflicted by his own father and remains haunted by the killing spree. Quote, he's unforgivable and he's exactly where he belongs, said Justin. You know, the children of serial killers, most of the time you hear that they were, you know, if not stellar parents, at least pretty decent parents where the children didn't really suspect that their parent was a serial killer, but this guy was a douche to his own son too, like, ooh. Okay, so I also have an update from Reuters about the starvation cult in 
um, Kenya, remember? I did a podcast on it. So, Kenya Doomsday Cult Death Toll climbs to 201. So, the Shakahola Forest, Kenya, searchers for survivors and victims of the Doomsday Cult in Kenya's Shakahola Forest discovered 22 more bodies recently, according to a regional government official. The discoveries bring the death toll to one of the country's worst tragedies, to 201. Quote, our forensic team was able to exhume 22 bodies today, but we have not reported any rescue. The country's southwest search is continuing. She said one more suspect had also been arrested, bringing the total number of those detained over the deaths to 26. Throughout this week, authorities have been digging up shallow graves scattered throughout the forest, looking for remains and scouring the area for any survivors as hundreds of people are still reported missing. So there is an update about the starvation cult. Our next article comes from Yahoo, of all places, USA Today, and the title reads, FBI searches NASA scientists' home property in California as part of a 27-year-old cold case. So the article reads, a cold case that's captivated Northern California for 27 years took federal officials to Redwood City this week for a continued search into the disappearance of Yilva Hagner, a Stanford University student missing since 1996. On Wednesday, FBI agents and evidence technicians visited Stallsaft Park and a nearby home to search for evidence, according to media reports. Video and photos taken showed them removing stones in the yard of the home and preparing to dig. Hagner, a 42-year-old native of Sweden, was reported missing in October of 1996 after disappearing from work in Belmont, a city in San Mateo County. Quote, the case has been refocused and we are conducting an investigation in Redwood City into the whereabouts of Yilva Hagner, end quote. Belmont Police Department Lieutenant Peter Lotti told CBS News. Neither the Belmont Police nor the San Mateo District Attorney's Office could immediately be reached by USA Today Friday. So the FBI's San Francisco office referred questions to Belmont Police, the Mercury News reported, quote, The FBI is assisting the Belmont Police Department today in an investigation in which they are the lead investigative agency, the FBI said in a statement. At this time, we are providing forensic support with our evidence response team. Thomas Pressburger, who was dating Hagner at the time of her disappearance, owns the home where the search took place and purchased it about seven months before she went missing. According to the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, Pressburger is a computer scientist at NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View, California. Now, Hagner, who had lived in Palo Alto since she disappeared, was last seen on October 14, 1996, at her place of employment at a software company. Her car was found in nearby San Carlos less than a mile from her office, 
A company official filed missing person report two days later after Hagner failed to make several appointments and missed a class at Stanford. So our next article comes from KTVB and the title says Brian Koberger indicted by grand jury to appear in court on Monday. So Brian Koberger, in case anyone has forgotten, as if anyone could, is the suspected murderer of the four students in Idaho, Moscow, Idaho. So the article says the suspect in the murder of four University of Idaho students has been indicted by an Idaho grand jury. A preliminary hearing has been canceled. A grand jury in Idaho has indicted the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students, eliminating the need for a preliminary hearing. The Lataw or Lataw County District Court Clerk confirms that Brian Koberger will now appear in court on Monday, May 22nd at 9 a.m., where he will likely enter a plea. So that's going to be this very Monday. The county district court clerk said the grand jury indicted Koberger on all charges. With the grand jury indictment, the preliminary hearing previously scheduled for June 26 has been canceled. The indictment means the grand jury believes there is enough evidence for the case to proceed to trial. Idaho law requires the prosecution to prove there is enough evidence, either through a grand jury or a preliminary hearing. We expect to get more information from the courts later this Wednesday. I can't wait for this trial. I, I've got to be, I've got to be completely honest. So our next and final article that was sent to me through the Facebook Serial Killing a Podcast fan page was sent to me by one of my gracious, wonderful followers comes from WSAZ News Channel 3. The title reads graphic. Parents arrested after 10-year-old weighing 36 pounds found walking to grocery store, police say. So this comes out of Griffin, Georgia. Tyler and Krista Shindley were arrested after police found their 10-year-old son weighing just 36 pounds walking in their neighborhood. Police said that on Friday, residents in Griffin, Georgia called 911 to report a lost boy wandering the neighborhood. When officers arrived, the boy told police that he was hungry and walking to a nearby Kroger, which is a grocery store, to get food and asked the officers to please not make him go back. Oh, my God. Officers described the boy as, quote, thin with discolored skin and visible injuries, end quote. Because of his condition, he was rushed to a nearby hospital. Investigators say the boy had an extremely low heart rate at the time of his evaluation. Quote, this child was, simply put, being starved to death and it is tragic, Spalding County District Attorney Marie Broder said. The couple has been charged with attempted homicide in the second degree and attempted malice murder. They also face charges of cruelty to children in the first degree, second degree, and third degree, battery, simple battery, and false imprisonment. According to the affidavit, Tyler and Krista Shindley intentionally withheld food from their son and locked him in his bedroom with no access to food, light, hot or warm running water, 
outside view, toilet paper, electronic communication, human interaction, adult supervision or access to exit the bedroom for, quote, extended periods of time and on multiple occasions, end quote, Griffin police described the abuse as deeply disturbing. Court documents suggest that the Shindleys not only abused their son, leaving dental injuries and disfiguration, but did so in the presence of other minors in the home. Authorities said that there were five children in the home. I'd be curious to see what condition the other four children were in. Is this child singled out like a child called it? And what are we dealing with here? So, so the authorities said the 10-year-old boy is alive in stable condition and receiving treatment in the hospital. During a court hearing Monday, a judge denied bond for both parents. They're currently in the Spalding County Jail, where they fucking deserve to be. So that is it, guys. That's what I have for you. A little bit quieter of a week, but I have been awfully busy because I was at True Crime Fest, which was so much fun. And next year, on May 11th, I will actually be speaking at True Crime Fest up on the stage. So if you're interested, you've got a year to plan. Outside of that, let's have a good week, guys. Let's get through this. We can. These nine to fives, unfortunately, are necessary. So just know I'm there with you. Have a great week, guys. Love you. Bye-bye.